become you It goes with your hair You certainly know the right thing to wear Moonlight becomes you I'm thrilled at the sight And I could get so romantic tonight Hello everyone and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the SlashFilmCast and joining me today, as always, he is the man who played Caveman Carl in the 1976 original series on CBS, Alice, Stephen Tobolowski. <laughs> Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I, I am doing so well and I've got to tell you, for the people who are listening, David never tells me what delights he's going to pull from my resume. And Caveman Carl brings up such memories. I got to tell you, David, you, you don't know. Caveman Carl was probably one of the first big roles I played on a sitcom. That's right. It's, it's, according to IMDb, it's your fourth ever credit. So. And, and the thing about Caveman Carl, it was back then based on a character, Wolfman Jack, who was a very popular DJ. You kind of talk like real, hey, what's up? What? You know, very crazy guy. But I believe Caveman Carl, they had someone to play Caveman Carl who they had fired. And I got a call from a casting agent, a casting director, Mindy Marin, who always was a supporter of mine. And always seemed to call me in. This is back when I wasn't working. I didn't have any auditions. And she said, Stephen, can you come in today? I think there's a part you'd be right for. And I came in, and it, I had no real audition time. I went in and read for the part in the morning. I rehearsed that afternoon. We, we kind of shot either that night or the next day. It's hard to remember, but it was such a celebration that I had that part, I invited all of my friends to come see the show. That was back when it was cool to invite all your friends to see the show. Uh After you begin working for a while, you you tend to not invite your friends to see the show because they're always kind of bummed out that you're working and they're not. So so you tend not to do that. But but that was a happier time, David. Well, from that auspicious beginning... Yes. Decades later, you're now co-hosting a low-budget podcast. So low-budget? I thought it was no budget. <laughs> you're right. Is, you're there, right. is there something that I don't know? Are you getting something on the side, David? Not, not at all. Not at all. I was under I was under the idea that this was absolutely no budget. This is a um, public service podcast. Yes. In yes. any case, uh, well, you know, Stephen, one of the things is speaking about this podcast when we first started it. Uh, the the sort of vision for the podcast is, was kind of a, a lot different than what it ended up becoming. Be, you know, we host this podcast at slashfilm.com, which is a movie website, yep. and we had originally sort of uh, anticipated that a lot of your stories might center around your voluminous show business resume. Caveman Carl, yeah, uh, exactly like Caveman Carl. But instead, you know, uh, it's we've gotten to learn more, more about you and about your life, and you've kind of established this narrative through line. For the podcast, uh, both season one yeah. and season two. Yeah, you know, it kind of takes over. Now, 
I had no intention of doing this when we started the podcast, but I found out that my right brain started talking to my left brain and saying, you know, Stephen, we really have to tell this story now. And we have to tell this story now. For example, I never intended to begin season two with this group of stories that just kind of has come forth out of me this last three weeks we were off. But my right brain was saying to my left brain, Stephen, you have to tell these stories. This story that I'm telling today, David, uh, is called Three Honeymoons. And it is about my three honeymoons, believe it or not. And it's actually, in terms of life, love, and the entertainment industry, it does center around life and love. And it is a continuation of last week. So if you're just tuning in for the first time, it would be good to listen to Dark Matter, uh, which was last week's podcast. And, uh, and in last week's podcast, for those of you who don't recall, I had just gotten married. Now, I'm going to pick it up from there. Of course, one of the problems with me getting married was, at the time, my dear wife-to-be, Annie, was already pregnant. And, and this was a bit of an issue. But I want to bring this up for my audience today, is that one of the biggest problems with premarital sex, other than the pregnancy and syphilis, is that it often takes the steam out of a honeymoon. In the old days, sex was the carrot that got you through the misery of the wedding. It was the kind of private joke that curled up the lip of the old timers as the new couple drove away in the Ford with the tin cans dragging along behind. Well, nowadays, sex has become diminished. It's a sort of human extension of animal planet and apparently the rite of passage before buying new textbooks for middle school. Considering that the novelty of sex is usually off the table by the time they get to the honeymoon, the young couple is stuck trying to figure out something memorable to put in its place. The time-honored tradition of the missionary position in an expensive hotel room has been replaced by flying to expensive exotic locales and engaging in some sort of light-threatening exercise that you don't usually do, like hang gliding at Machu Picchu, or parachuting from a hot air balloon in Kenya. If the newlyweds aren't killed by hitting the rocks or getting drowned in the ocean, they usually go back to the hotel room for a little bit of the missionary position. Anne and I were caught between two worlds. We were married and pregnant. So the sex bridge had definitely been crossed. We didn't have the money or the time to jump out of anything, so we were stuck with the Radisson Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. And our life-threatening activity was staying at the Radisson Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee for two days. After we were married in the courthouse, we went back to the hotel room and were hit with a huge wave of, so now what are we supposed to do? I filled the vacuum by officially asking for the first time as a married man, do you want to get something to eat? If someone told me that day, that if I were to chart the frequency of things I would say to Anne over the next 21 years of marriage, the top five in reverse order would be, number five, have you seen my keys? Number four, have you seen my glasses? Number three, I love you. Number two, have you seen the remote? And number one, you want to get something to eat. Anne said she was nauseous from the pregnancy, so food wasn't a high priority. She had been living off of bananas and shredded wheat for the last month. But I told her we had to do something to celebrate somehow. In an attempt to do something special, 
I pulled out the room service menu. Now, that is not something you do every day, and it certainly is an extravagance. I've often thought that the prices of food on a room service menu are comparable to stories from the Crusades or the prices of grain in a walled city during a siege. The Radisson offered the hamburger, the hamburger platter that included fries and a salad, the BLT, the fried fish sandwich, the fried fish sandwich platter, the chef salad, and the 24-hour breakfast menu. It was not inspirational. I told Ann that I would go down to the lobby and ask the bartender if he had any ideas. Now, over the last few weeks, the bartender and I had bonded. And I felt sure if I explained to him the special nature of the day, he could give me a good suggestion or two for the makings of a memorable evening. He told me I could bring Annie down for a free drink. And the popcorn, of course, was always free. If I wanted to wait until 5.30, the free happy hour appetizers would be out. And I asked him what was on the menu tonight. He said it was Mexican night. So there would be chips and salsa, the five-layer bean dip, and cocktail franks. I was surprised by the inclusion of cocktail franks on Mexican night. He laughed and explained that the cocktail franks were out every night. I wondered if we could order some food in, and he said a lot of people order Domino's pizza. Domino's was only four blocks away. I thanked him, said, no thanks. We would probably go out and get some barbecue that Memphis does better than just about anybody in the entire world. But he said it wasn't a good night for that. The weather was bad. Big thunderstorms were coming into the area. I went back and told Annie the news. She said that she didn't need anything fancy. Domino's Pizza actually sounded just fine. I called up and ordered sausage and jalapeno pepper pizza. Now, if any of you are old timers, <laughs> you remember back in those days, Domino's advertised that they would give you a free pizza if it wasn't delivered in 30 minutes. Well, the man on the phone told me that because of the three tornadoes in town, they wouldn't be able to guarantee a quick delivery. So the free pizza deal was off the table. I told him that was not a problem. I asked when the pizza would be ready. He told me 15 minutes. I told him I would pick it up myself. I kissed Annie. I told her I was off to pick up the pizza. It would be quicker than waiting for delivery. She said, fine. I headed down to the underground garage and got in my car. And on the way up the ramp, I started to hear wind and driving rain outside. And then my mind started playing back the conversation I had with the pizza man. And on the replay, I remember him saying something about three tornadoes. I had experience with tornadoes before. <laughs> it was not good. Uh, many of you may remember if you listened to season one. It was about 12 years ago, 1975, at the University of Illinois. Beth and I spent about the longest 15 minutes of our lives running around our apartment looking for a good place to die. That time, I was warned by the weather service. Today, I was warned by the pizza man. Okay, okay. There was probably a little part of me that assumed he was misinformed or he was exaggerating like pizza people often do when they tell you how quickly your pizza will be delivered. Tonight, he was telling the truth. I emerged from the safety of the concrete underground garage and was immediately battered by extraordinary winds and hail. A tree had been uprooted and was being blown across the road. 
Then my car started to move sideways on its own. I was on the verge of going airborne. I slammed on the brakes. That seemed to help a little. It was impossible to see out of the windows of the car because the incredibly powerful rain. So I couldn't back into the hotel. So I sat in the car for 15 minutes until the worst of the wind seemed to die down. And then I inched forward on my four-block trek to Domino's. I got there an hour later. I ran inside, and the man said he tried to keep my pizza warm. It was ready a long time ago. He said the weather seemed pretty bad. I told him it was as bad as weather could get before it stopped being called weather. I thanked him and headed out the door. I should remind you that this is long before the age of cell phones. Without any communication, Annie was concerned that I had vanished on our wedding night. She ran and hugged me when I returned two hours late with a wet, cold pizza. I explained that the three tornadoes made it slow going. We cozied up in bed and feasted on sausage and jalapeno pizza. We splurged and got a Diet Coke and Budweiser from the mini bar. Unbeknownst to us, we had become trailblazers and doing death-defying things on our honeymoon, even if it was only picking up a pizza. But more importantly, a mythology began. Mythology is always important when you're creating a system of beliefs, and we desperately wanted to believe in love and our life together. Every year on our anniversary, we still order a sausage and jalapeno pizza in honor of the two-hour car trip, the wet dinner, and the promise that I would return. So that first honeymoon was in 1988. Now we go to honeymoon number two in the year 2000. If you stay married long enough, you dramatically increase your chances of going on a second honeymoon or getting divorced. Anne and I tried to do both. We had all the ingredients for trouble. The birth of the children certainly had a negative impact on Anne's career. It was impossible to be a full-time mother and a full-time actress. We brought nannies into our lives, which made things worse. One was a felon and robbed us. Several were overqualified and moved on to better things at the most inopportune times. And others were underqualified and have probably been on MTV reality shows by now. The lack of a creative outlet led to all sorts of personal problems for Anne. My career led me away from home that added loneliness to the mix. It set us against one another for a while, and the worst part was we ceased to be friends. It was definitely part of the worse in the for better or worse on our little index cards. You know, I think about those little cards all of the time and the vows we made to each other, so few words and such gigantic promises. I guarantee that most people making those promises have absolutely no idea what they're saying. We were in our 30s, and we didn't have a clue. You don't really know what richer or poorer means, right? For example, most people think that the richer part of that promise is kind of meaningless because richer, richer is a good thing, and it's only there for some sort of literary symmetry. Let me tell you, 
richer can cause big problems. I remember a period when Beth and I were together. It was near the end of our relationship, and she had lots of money now from Crimes of the Heart. You have to understand that Beth never really cooked except for some toxic chicken dishes that she fixed for me during our college days. As a result, she wanted to go out and eat every night. And the restaurant she loved, well, we both loved, was a place that I'm sorry to say is no more, Cuckoo's. Cuckoo's served delicious French cuisine, but it was also about $100 a person. I was working as an actor, but I was still struggling, and I did not want to go to a restaurant every night and spend $100. And I didn't want Beth to pay for every meal. It made me feel bad. It made me feel like a freeloader. I should be clear that Beth never tried to make me feel that way. But at the same time, she didn't want to compromise and eat at home occasionally. Resentment built up. It formed a mythology that I was holding her back from living her life. And for me, I was angry that she refused to listen to my concerns. If you have read any of the relationship books, all of these things are in the really bad column. Whereas Beth was quintessentially secretive, which is also in the really bad column, Anne was quite outspoken and fundamentally clear. She was clearly unhappy. Anne was feeling the same types of resentment toward me that I had felt toward Beth. Anne felt unheard. And in spite of all of my experience in the land of resentment, there seemed to be almost nothing I could do to make matters better. So I endeavored to make matters worse. At one point, I filed for divorce and Anne moved out. But the truth is, I missed her. And after a few tentative months, we worked on becoming friends again. Things tentatively got better. Anne moved back in, and we went to therapists. And that seemed to work, because as I got to loathe my therapist more and more, I realized Anne wasn't so bad. It culminated one morning when I was telling my doctor, who was a woman, how depressed I was about my failures in the relationships with these two women in my life, Beth and Anne. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know what to do. I felt like I tried everything. And then my heart-rending monologue was interrupted by the sound of my therapist snoring. She had been asleep behind her legal pad the whole time and hadn't heard anything I said. Therapy sessions like this not only cause additional psychic injury, but now I had to deal with the delicate negotiation of waking up my doctor without embarrassing her or having her think I used a date rape drug on her. I carefully shook her leg. She startled awake. I told her she was sleeping. She asked me what I was saying. I told her I already told her. I didn't want to waste my time by telling her a second time just because she was asleep. And what if I started telling her how depressed I was, and she found it boring again, and she fell asleep again? In fact, I went so far as to say I didn't think she should charge me for the session. She got defensive and said whether or not she was asleep, I still got benefit of her being there and I had to pay. You have to be a PhD to think like that. But I have to give credit where credit is due. The doctor was right. I did get benefit. I started to realize that when Ann and I got into a fight like this, I didn't have to pay her $125. I needed to hold on to Ann at all costs. 
we began to reconcile, and we decided to go on a second honeymoon to get to know one another again, to try to see the better in the for better or worse again. Anne planned the trip. She's extremely good at planning. We were going to Monterey and Carmel in the Big Sur country of California. We got our non-criminal nanny to stay with the children. It was going to be the first time the two of us, Anne and I, were really alone technically since we were dating. That was 13 years ago. Terrifying. We drove up the coast. I put on some of our favorite music to conjure up good juju. As we winded our way up Highway 1, I felt my chest tightening. It had been over a decade since the central topic of conversation was children, schools, nannies, and when my next job would be. We checked into our lovely country inn in Monterey. We were given the library room with shelves of books and a fireplace. I couldn't think of a more romantic setting. We made reservations for one of the best restaurants in the area, and we headed out for dinner. I sat at the table sipping Chardonnay in a pool of flop sweat. In spite of the presence of alcohol, I still felt like I was on a date in junior high school. My mind was blank. I had nothing to say to Anne. I hardly even knew who she was. I didn't even know where to begin. I had resolved not to talk about the kids, and I was coming up with zero to fill the void. It's easy to talk when you're in your 20s. I'm going to be a musician. I write my own songs. I'm in drama school. I love the theater. I'll be heading out for New York next year. Or I'm a physics major. Right now I'm interested in dark matter. You speak under the illusion that your dreams are real. And they might as well be. Because the illusion that your dreams are real usually comes with a Siamese twin illusion that you have an endless amount of time to make them so. But when you're 40 and you've had some of your options taken off the table by choice or by circumstance, words are harder to find. And when you have children and you watch how quickly they grow, it's worse because you realize how few days you really have. In physics, there's something called the theory of slope. It's illustrated by pouring sand from a bucket at a playground. And we've all done this. The sand slowly grows into a mound as you pour. It rises higher and higher at a regular rate. And then suddenly, without warning, the weight of the sand reaches a critical point and the mound collapses. The key is that it falls much more quickly than it rises. And it's the same thing for the dreams we have in our lives. They build slowly in a very regular rate, but they tend to fall apart quickly and unpredictably. What remains is what keeps us awake at night. I sat facing Anne, unable to make conversation. It would have been easy at this point to go back to the room to make love. That was expected on this trip. I wanted to do anything but talk. I sat in the excruciating silence. Finally, I started asking what were some of her favorite memories from our life together. She mentioned the trips to England and Finland when we were dating. She mentioned when we acted together in plays at the Los Angeles Theater Center for some reason. We always seemed to be cast opposite of one another in the glass menagerie. She was Laura. I was the gentleman caller in Barabbas. In, in Three Sisters, 
I mentioned the picnic she made for me one day during Three Sisters. Anne had cooked chicken and vegetables and rolls, and we sat under the stage after the matinee before the evening show, and it was an actual home-cooked dinner. I never told her at the time what an amazing treat that was. As we talked about the past, it slowly became the present, and I began to recognize what a huge part this dear girl had in my life, my friend, my confidant, the mother of my children. And then I saw that ring on her finger, and it was still the one that I bought her in Wales, the one that we bought for $35 from the girl who set up a roadside stand by a sheep farm. We finished dinner, and we headed back to the inn for the night. Anne changed into her nightgown and got into bed. She said she was envious of the children because I would always read bedtime stories to them. I smiled and told her I would read her a story. I looked on the shelves, and amazingly, there in our little library was a book I read when Anne and I first dated It's an odd book. It's not a common book at all. It's a beautiful collection of essays by Lauren Isley called The Star Thrower. And I opened up the book and I started to read the first story, one of my absolute favorites, called The Judgment of the Birds. This story is part science and part poetry about the unexpected methods of survival one finds in the universe. As I read, Anne smiled and her eyes closed. Her breathing deepened, and I saw all the care vanish from her face, and she transformed into the girl I knew 15 years ago cleaning dishes with me at a party, the same girl I had a moonlight conversation with about tomatoes. I reached the final lines of the story. In the story, Lauren Isley observes a spider outside of his window desperately trying to stay alive through the winter. She finally managed to build a web on a street lamp. Isley noted that in times of frost, seek a minor sun. I closed the book quietly. I turned out the light. And by the glow of the fireplace, I fell asleep next to Anne. We had our third honeymoon in 2008. Now, we never intended it to be a honeymoon. It just worked out that way. Anne and I were on our way to Iceland for a week, three days of it on horseback, and we stopped in New York to see our friend Julie Haggerty opening in a play off-Broadway. It was on this trip to New York that Anne and I discovered that after 20 years of marriage, sex actually becomes a novelty again. We were like teenagers. We were were staying at a wonderfully cozy hotel on the east side of Manhattan. We walked, we shopped, we saw plays. We went to services every morning at one of the oldest synagogues in the country. And in between, we utilized the room. 
I wasn't sure what the joke was, but every time Anne and I came back from an adventure in the city and headed for the elevators, the maids started blushing and laughing, and the people <laughs> behind the front desk started whispering and giggling. And finally, I doubled back, and I asked the man behind the desk what was going on. He said, you really want to know? I said, absolutely. He smiled and said in a rather secretive way, you two are known around the hotel as the newlyweds. The maids can't get over how many times a day they have to redo the bed. You're a legend, man. I took it all in. I maintained my dignity. And then I did what any man would do. I high-fived him. I went back to the elevator where Anne was waiting. She asked me what was going on. I told her I would tell her in the room. And I did. It took 20 years and two honeymoons along the way, but our third honeymoon was your storybook amazing romantic once-in-a-lifetime event. We had no way of knowing when we left New York that within a week I would suffer a near-fatal injury in Iceland. I would break my neck in five places. My memory of all the honeymoons was gone. All I remembered from that afternoon in Iceland was the face of Annie looking down at me in the back of an ambulance. I remember asking her, what happened to me? What happened? And I remember her smiling, saying, I'll tell you, but you won't remember. The siren blared as we tore down Iceland's only highway on the way to a hospital in Reykjavik. And then blackness surrounded me. This may be my final question to our Nobel physicist in Dallas, Dr. Weinberg, the next time I run into him in his quest to find dark matter of the universe. Perhaps the missing 80% is something we call fate. And in its unfathomable realm, we dodge tornadoes on our way to get pizza, and we find lost books to read a bedtime story. We find the people we love by moonlight. And along the way, we mourn the promises we were unable to keep and occasionally celebrate the ones we never broke. That was Three Honeymoons, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. You know, Stephen, uh, over time, uh, e even as your stories are incredibly moving and, uh, and profound, uh, we've also gotten some pretty profound and moving emails from listeners. I just want to read one, and hopefully we can try to make this kind of a weekly thing where we read one of your emails. Uh, of course, it has I think to be that's a great idea, because i got to tell you, I... Sometimes I'm just staggered by the emails I get. Go ahead, read one. Let me see. Here. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say uh, we will leave out your personal information, like your name uh, and where you're from, unless you specifically say you are okay with us including it. Um, but otherwise, uh, here, here is one email that we got this week that I thought was really quite powerful. Um, someone writes in, I just want to thank you for your inspirational podcast. I'm 17 years old and about to graduate from high school. I have recently been forced to give up on my dream college for financial reasons, and your podcast has been instrumental in my healing process. 
I had been fixated on this school for several years, and upon being accepted, it consumed my thoughts. This made it all the more difficult to bear when it was decided I would not be attending. Hearing this news, I felt my life was over, which I realize sounds ridiculous in retrospect. I didn't get out of bed for days, and while lying there, I listened to hours upon hours of the Tobolowsky files. Your stories put my plight into perspective and helped me to realize that there are so many facets of life. While I'm hurting now, this is just a minor setback. For this, I'm unbelievably appreciative. Thank you for your interesting, meaningful tales. They have helped me much more than I can explain here. Wow. I want to thank you personally for the email. And because it did serve as a major kick in my butt to write stories that are difficult <laughs> difficult for me to write, but I feel I have to write them. Right. Okay, that's all I want to say about that. I also want to give a big shout out to Miles McNutt, who's a TV critic and also a friend of the show. He wrote a pretty great essay slash analysis slash critique of the Tobolowsky Files. It's called A Serialized Man, The Narrative Pleasures of the Tobolowsky Files. And I think it's a reference to the, the title there is a reference to a serious man, a, a serialized man. Uh, and it's just a, just a, one, of the, one of the best review, probably the best review of the Tobolowsky Files I have read yet. So uh, a big thanks to Miles for putting that together. His website is cultural-learnings.com. But if you want to find that essay, just Google the words, A Serialized Man. So we're going to try to read uh, more of the listeners' emails on the show. Try to keep, if you want us to read them on the show, uh, try to keep them under uh, a couple paragraphs. Uh, Although please don't stop writing the several page long emails, which you guys often do, because uh, those are also really cool and encouraging for us to read. And of course, you can check them all out at uh, the Tobolowsky testimonies at tobolowsky.tumblr.com. But Stephen, if people want to email you, uh, with their thoughts on the show and share more with you about their lives, how can they do that? The best way to get me is at stephentobolowski at gmail.com, and that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N, T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, L-O-W-S-K-Y, at gmail.com. Uh, send me an email there. You can also uh, talk to me on uh, at Twitter, right, at twitter.com slash tobolowsky. And uh, there's a page on Facebook now. Right, facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. So check out Stephen there as well. And uh, if you'd like to follow some of my work, you can go to twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y, or slashfilmcast.com. And, of course, a big thanks to slashfilm.com, who hosts the podcast every week. Uh, It's a pretty cool movie site. If you like movies, check it out at slashfilm.com. Uh, and I think that's going to take us to the end of this week's episode. Almost. So, I just want to mention two sure. more things. Go ahead. Uh, thing number one is we're still going to have some kind of shout-out, right? We're going to have a get-together in, in L.A., right? Yes. Well, uh, that is currently being worked out, but very tentatively, May 5th, Saturday. But June? Wor- June. I'm sorry, June 5th, Saturday. We'll work out the details of that and announce them as time continues. And I also wanted to mention, if, if, if you like the show or however you feel about the show, keep writing the uh, uh, on iTunes. Uh, don't be shy and go ahead and give us a little review on iTunes because it increases our visibility there and it, everything helps out. Yeah, uh, and if you have a blog or a Tumblr or whatever, uh, or you write for a major metropolitan newspaper or you know whatever you have... Uh, and you'd like to write about the Tobolowsky Files, uh, please do so. Feel free to let us know, and uh, we'd love to chat with you about it. 
So I think that takes us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, Thank you guys for listening so much. Uh, We'll see you guys next week. Take it easy, guys. Bye-bye.